Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasures in pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former, former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10 is a synthesis, or it's a... uh, arrival point after a number of different discussions that the Hebrew writer has made. Now, again, the Hebrew writer did not put in the chapters and verses. just want you to understand that. They were added at parts that uh, various theologians and scribes over the years thought helpful, and there's a rich uh, amount of church history around how they came to us. But the main point is that chapters are uh, are, as you can tell by this chapter, it's much longer than any of the prior chapters that we've read. In fact, I think it's the largest chapter in uh, the book of Hebrews, at least by words, uh, if not for chapter 11. I, I haven't counted, but uh, the point is that this is an actual weaving together. If you think of multiple strands in a quilt or in a work of cloth, all the strands have been woven together, they've overlapped and interacted, and finally here it's all tied together by the writer. And to that end, we're actually going to see a number of things we've talked about in the last four weeks come right back into the forefront. So if this is your first week with us, uh, don't don't feel bad that you've missed out. We're going to cover a sufficient uh, review in order for you to understand what it is that the book of Hebrews is talking about at this point. So if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the series, we talked about Jesus Christ in chapter one. He's presented as the final revelation from the Father. And so the Hebrew writer says that God has spoken through the prophets to his people in different ways, different manners, sending a prophet or a priest or a king. And those people either did God's will or they told of God's will and Most of the time, it was a combination of the two. 
So you see a prophet, he reminds the people to be faithful, and then the prophet, whether it be Elijah, Elisha, uh, some of the other prophets, Daniel, they, they do exploits by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And those actions and speaking, those two are, are sign pointers forward to the ministry of Christ. And so the Hebrew writer says that Christ in his incarnation is the final word of revelation and being the final word, woe is us should we not heed that word. Essentially, the context of the book of Hebrews is a number of Christians who were suffering under the threat of what is called Judaizing. And that Judaizing is a process by which uh, Hebrew believers who did not fully understand the revelation in Christ were going around to other Greek believers, that is non-Hebrew believers, people who would have been considered Gentiles, and they were trying to convince them that they need to add to their Christianity an aspect of external performance, works, righteousness. And that is a very clear theme throughout the entire New Testament. We see this in the book of Galatians quite clearly. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, you maybe remember that we referred to Galatians as being really a letter written to a church that was struggling with this exact issue. That's not limited to Galatians. In fact, that shows up in Corinthians. It shows up in Colossians in a very small way. And it shows up extremely clearly in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a letter that's being written to a particular generation that lives in an overlap between the covenants. And that overlap between the covenants is brought about after the death of Christ up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus Christ, before his death, and in fact, in the very few days before his death, pronounced destruction over the city of Jerusalem because they had never received God's warnings. They had never received God's prophet. If you remember, perhaps in the Gospels, the parable of the vineyard renters, how the vineyard owner would send an employee, a servant, a delegation to the vineyard renters, and each time they would scourge one, stone another, throw them out of the vineyard. Finally, the vineyard owner sends his son, and they kill him. And so what's the outcome? What is the parable? Jesus actually asks the Pharisees what they think the owner of the vineyard will do. And they say, they prophesy above, about themselves that the vineyard owner will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And that phrase, those wretches to a wretched end, is nothing other than an explicit and literal demonstration of the, the pronouncement of judgment over Jerusalem, which would come, back, come up to pass, as Jesus said, in one generation. He said that this generation will not pass away until these things are complete. That was a summary statement after describing the fact that the disciples were standing in awe of the temple complex, the building which was many stories high and uh, gilded in some places, full of bronze work, full of artistry, with amazing stonework. They're caught up in the glory of the temple, and he says to them, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left standing on another. And so the idea is that Christ has prophesied destruction on Jerusalem, and then the book of Hebrews is the theological unpacking of why that has to be the case. It's not that Jesus is some mean guy who wants revenge on the people who live in Jerusalem. He's not, 
he's not killing them uh, because they killed him, but rather God's judgments had been pronounced for centuries against Jerusalem, and they did not heed the warning. And in fact, when you look at the actual structure of what takes place, this is a little too far afield for us, but if you go and look at the history, especially a guy by the name of Josephus, he wrote a book of history in which it's demonstrated that the Jews bring this on themselves by trying to revolt against the Roman occupation. And the, the, uh, there's actually, they actually had a group of people at the, in that day called the Daggermen, which is where we get the idea of assassins. And they would go through these, these people would conceal daggers, per, perhaps inspired by you know, Ehud or something like this, and they, they would go through the crowds and they would just murder their fellow Israelites who they suspected or actually were sympathizers with Rome. And so at some point, they try to th overthrow the Roman garrison. They actually do succeed for a few days, and then Rome sends in a legion to take care of the rebellion. And so it's not that God did not ever give them a chance to repent. It's merely the case that in their hardness of heart, they continually killed, stoned, beaten, scourged, not only the prophets before Christ, but Christ himself, and then all of the rest of the delegations that Christ sent to them. If you look through the, the rest of the book of Acts, especially Acts 20 and 21, we see this happen to Paul. He's actually taken, he's actually, uh, taken by a mob out of the outer court of the temple complex trying to preach grace there trying to preach the revelation that comes about through Christ. And so this terrible warning is over the city of Jerusalem. And throughout all of the Christian uh, realm, there were these people who were Jewish believers who perhaps understood that Christ was the Messiah, but did not fully understand the fact that it was no longer necessary to observe those things which were only temporary. And so they attempted to pervert this being an evil thing, they attempted to pervert the pure faith of these Greek or Gentile Christians, trying to convince them that Christ was not enough. That if you're a Christian, you still have to be circumcised. If you're a Christian, you still have to travel to Jerusalem to observe the feast. If you're a Christian, you still can only eat with those who are true Israelites. And this is over and over again a serious, serious problem. It comes to a head here in Hebrews 10, although it's been throughout the, our time in Hebrews, it's been emphasized over and over again. And so when we get to this warning of judgment, I want to make clear that this is not a warning of judgment, as you may have heard in the reading, about ongoing sin that you constantly struggle against and war against in your own life. This is against a particular sin. And the reason why it's important to do so is, if you don't understand the historical context, this can be a very condemning result. That is to say, if you don't understand what the Hebrew writer is referring to, then you will take away the wrong, you won't get the intention of the Hebrew writer. And namely, the, the Spirit of God who inspired the text. So I want to look at a very quick summary of the law as a shadow of Christ, never being the substance of the covenant, but rather just pointing forward to Christ. I want to look at the Trinitarian aspect of salvation that we see here. And this is really a demonstration of God's glory. It is true that whenever God does something in the earth, he always does it as Father as Son, and as Holy Spirit. These are not modes of God's operation, but rather three persons in one being. That three person in one being nature we describe as the Trinity. We worship a God in Trinity. 
He is a trinity in unity, a unity in trinity, and we understand him to be not composed of, but consisting of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's very important you understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you add them all up, you don't get God. Each one of them is God, and each one of them is active in the unfolding plan of redemption as it's brought about on the earth. And the reason why that's so important is because it agrees and harmonizes with the covenant structure that the Hebrew writer is unpacking. Probably the greatest thing you need to know about the New Testament is the principles of witnessing in the Bible. The law demands that every fact, the law of God demands that every fact be conferred by or confirmed by two or three witnesses, and God holds himself to that standard, as we see in the text. This provides a bedrock, unshakable foundation for confidence before God. And by that, I mean confidence before God in religion. That is to say, the the confidence which is in the middle portion of this chapter does not actually refer to any sort of suffering or persecution or, or an actual situation, but rather, how do you know the truth of the gospel? How do you know that the redemptive plan that we know to be the gospel is actually real? And that confidence is a spiritual confidence which attends both heart and mind. Finally, he moves on to a warning of judgment for apostasy. As we referred to a a few minutes ago, uh, we're going to see in in quite sharp uh, relief that there's actually a demonstration here that the Hebrew writer is making. He's warning them not to turn away from Christ and revert back to that which they formerly had thought was sufficient. And then finally, the confidence in suffering. So this, this idea that not only is there going to be a destruction in Jerusalem, but there also, throughout the Roman Empire, every place that Christians were living, they were suffering under extremely difficult situations, as the Hebrew writer enumerates a few of them just briefly. This shows up also in Philippians 2, a little bit in Corinthians, especially with the offering that the Corinthians give. And it's a wonderful testimony to the reality of God. These things, persistence, faithfulness, confidence in the midst of suffering, testifies of the glory and sufficiency of God. When you have your things taken from you, the things which you even may hold dear or work for or steward well for the glory of God, when those are eliminated, your confidence before God, your lack of turning from God, is actually proof that God is glorious and that your faith is real. And so I want to encourage you that, especially in the cultural context of our country right now, there are some things which are going to be shaking the unreality out of the church And that which remains will be glorious and beautiful. And I want to give you confidence to know what's going to happen. And and I'm not prophesying doom and gloom. In fact, actually the opposite. But just because we see a glorious future in the middle of the chapter doesn't mean we also have to endure suffering. And so I just want to briefly encourage you that demonstrating God as glorious is a right and worthy thing, which we'll see the Hebrew writer commend us. So the Hebrew writer reiterates the weakness of the law as mentioned in the prior chapter. If you were here last week, you may remember that the law was not able to deal with sin. We, we said that each Levite is born into the world having a job to do, that is to make atonements at the temple. And each Levite dies and his work is still to be done. And so the sufficiency of the Levitical priesthood is not, it's not possible, it's impossible because God does not require the blood of bulls and goats. Now, this is not to say that God did not command 
but rather that it was never intended to take away sins, but rather put off for a year. It says that they can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered make perfect those who draw near. And this was not based upon the Israelites' failure. You may remember last week we talked about how the the Levites themselves were full of corruption, even from the beginning. Aaron, before Moses has even come down from uh, from Mount Sinai, he's already created an, an idol made out of gold. And the beginning of the law is, you shall worship the Lord your God. And then the second one is, you shall not make any idols. And already... Aaron has perverted the priesthood from the root of the priesthood. It's called the Levitical priesthood because Aaron was from the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Levi was chosen. But at the time, God saw Aaron as the federal representative head over that priesthood. Aaron's really the root of the priesthood of Levi. And so God's desire for the law was to create a theological and cultural awareness of need. We talked about that in great detail last week, how each Each time an offering is given, because it's not dealing with sin, it's actually highlighting the problem of sin. Remember back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are naked after their fall, and they're hiding from the presence of God, and they wish to hide themselves. And he says, where are you? And then Adam says, I hid because I heard your sound, or I heard the sound of your presence coming in the garden, and I was afraid, for I am naked. And then Yahweh says to Adam, who told you? And, and then he says, he doesn't even give chan- a chance for Adam to answer. He then says, have you indeed eaten from the tree? The point being that Adam, should he come before God now, he needs a covering. And that covering was provided by God himself as a shadow and pointer to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, by killing a lamb and making coverings for Adam and Eve. The fig leaf covering, which they had attempted to build for themselves, was insufficient. And that covering came at the expense of the life of the lamb. This is what is necessary for people to come before Yahweh. And this is really what the sacrifices were intended to do. They were to make a temporary and provisional means by which those people could come before God and show through their obedience of the keeping of the sacrifices that they trusted in God. Does that make sense? It is not as if God through these verses is saying what you thought Moses said to you wasn't really from me. It's that what you've perverted them into, not allowing mercy to attend your sacrifices, not doing the works of the law from the heart, you actually have perverted the true intention of the law. We looked at last week how the fact that the sacrifices continually happen, it's a reminder before Yahweh of the fact that there's sin. They're a putting off of atonement, and by this, God actually is demonstrating that some of the Levites, not all, But some of the Levites actually have a faith-filled obedience before him as they faithfully keep the ordinances of God. We're going to see that not not with regard to Levites, but next week when we get into chapter 11, we're going to see how the the prophets of old, the patriarchs, they actually obeyed God and it was a faith-filled obedience. We're going to see some amazing and beautiful things in, in the next chapter. And so this is exactly what God's demonstration was. But at the same time, even though they obey... Those sacrifices, the act of it happening, the act of the priest making an atonement in the temple, that act is actually a reminder before God and before the people that their sin hasn't been dealt with because we've been here before. In fact, we were here just last year and we'll be here next year. 
So you have to absolutely see Christ in the light of the Levitical priesthood. That's why the Bible says consequently, or it's essentially getting to the point of in the context of the Levitical system, how there was never a final sacrifice for sins, Christ came. David speaking, uh, sorry, verse five, uh, consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he begins to quote from uh, Psalm 40. David speaking by the spirit of Christ, this is a Psalm that David wrote, he prophesies the testimony or the words that Christ himself would say. I want you to see how the, uh, the apostles, uh, surely this book was written by one of the apostles, well, that's another debate for another day. We won't get into who wrote Hebrews. The point being the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament continually and persistently shows portions of the Old Testament, which if you read them just from the text, don't look as if they're speaking about Christ, actually do have something to say about Christ. And the Hebrew writer says that David, by the Spirit of God, was testifying of what Christ himself would say in the spirit, in his incarnation. That is, this is what Christ is describing the incarnation to be. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. We saw last week how Jesus Christ entered into the heavenly temple through the veil of his own body. And that there was a spiritual and physical transaction taking place as Christ willingly went to the cross, offering his blood on the earth and in the heavenly temple. And this was a beautiful mystery that we saw as Hebrews 9 says uh, that, that he has made an atonement passing through the heavens, through the veil of his own body, which is reiterated here in this chapter. Verse 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written me in the scroll of your book. And so what Christ does is he not only tells us about the incarnation, but he actually even says something about scripture itself. He says that there is something, by the time David writes Psalm 40, that there is something about the Messiah and the Messiah's offering, which he will give, that is already written before David writes that psalm. It's a little confusing, but essentially what this means is that Christ himself in his incarnation is identifying himself as being the completion of the sacrifices. And so through the faithful and obedient death of, uh, of Christ, not only his death, but also his ministry, he deprecates or sets aside or marks as expiring the old Levitical system. And that we saw uh, in previous weeks in uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter eight at the end, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is a book that's written before the destruction of Jerusalem and yet after the pronouncement of judgment upon it. And so that priesthood, although it is vanishing, it is not completely vanished, but it is ready to. Christ provides the one true and only eternal sanctification. He says, behold, I have come to do your will, and then the Hebrew writer actually in, interprets for us. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And we saw last week how the, the two covenants, the old covenant and new covenant, were administrations of the one true eternal covenant, as we'll again see next week in chapter 11. And by that will, and that will is referring to the Father's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus. 
So looking closer at the life and death of Christ, this is where we get into the Trinitarian nature of Christ's mission to the earth. He says that I have come to do your will, O God. Now we know that Jesus Christ being the son of God, in saying, O God, he really is referring to the Father. And so in referring to the Father, we see not only the Father's action, but also the Son in light of it. Look again closely. Behold, I have come to do your will. And so Jesus, in his testimony that was spoken before by David, is saying that his desire in the incarnation is to do the will of the Father. And it says, and by that will, that is the Father reconciles us through Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering. So we see the Father at work in the Son's work to do something for us. And so we have Father, Son, and where's the third testimony? Christ declares that his submission to the Father's will is in the incarnation. I want you to understand this clearly. Christ is not less glorious than the Father. He was eternally God and had eternal glory, authority, majesty, power, right, reign, rule, wonder, infinite beauty, infinite holiness, infinite truth. The Bible says that Christ was eternally dwelling in the bosom of the Father. They had perfect unity, perfect fellowship. If you ever want to see a glimpse of what this looks like, Christ gave us a a wonderfully merciful glimpse through John 17. He says, now glorify me with the same glory that we had before the worlds were. This is a wonderful thing. And so Jesus says that I have come to do your will. He says that he submits to the Father's will in the incarnation. And that submission, although that language is not popular today, that submission in no way lessens or diminishes the glory of Christ. In fact, it amplifies it because it shows him as loving the Father because love is to seek the other. Love is to do the will of of the one who is loved. And so Christ's execution of the will of the Father, his, his completing of it, which resulted in his death, is done and has satisfied for all time the need for the purity of God's children. You see, the Father has adopted us eternally. He's elected us eternally. And then he brings it about through time, through the incarnation, choosing to and agreeing with and commissioning the Son to go and to do his will. That is to provide an atonement. And that atonement realized in time, realized 2,000 years ago outside the city of Jerusalem, has perfectly sanctified you for all time. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is not just that Christ died to save sinners. That's true, but that's just one sentence. And a, a more accurate understanding of the gospel is that God was reconciling his people to him through Christ on the cross, as Colossians 2 tells us. So why does the writer constantly go back and forth? Before we get to the third testimony, I want you to to realize, why does he go back and forth comparing Christ to the Levites? And So in verses 1 through 5, he compares, 1 through 4, he compares the sacrifices which were already given, and then 5 through about 10, he, he talks about Jesus Christ, and then he reverts back to the Levites in 11 through 14. Why is this happening? The reason why is the Hebrew writer is trying to arm his hearers. He's trying to arm his hearers by enabling them to receive the mind of Christ through the word of God. 
the Hebrew writer has a specific intention to create within them theological resource, spiritual resource, in order that they would understand why Christ is sufficient. And that system, which they're tempted to revert to, is insufficient. He builds this to them, and he establishes it so that they would not revert back to Judaism. He says in verse 11, Every priest stands daily, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time, he sat down. What do you do when you're done with your work? You sit down. I have the unfortunate job of being a programmer. I sit all the time. This analogy does not work for me. But for real jobs, hard jobs, um, I can say that. If I said that about someone else's job, someone would put it on Twitter or something. (laughs) There'd be a firestorm instantly. I'd be condemning someone or speaking harshly. Nevertheless, the ministers who continue to stand because the temple is still standing, they stand every year. They stand even daily. Not only is there a yearly atonement, there also are daily offerings for sin. If you want to read about that, Leviticus 4 is a wonderful chapter. It outlines all of the different sin offerings. Another thing is that the burnt offering is really an ascension offering, but that's too much to get into today. But there's an important difference. And the the, the point is this, that, that they continue to stand, but Jesus Christ can take a seat because he's completed his work of atonement. And it says that he's waiting, Jesus Christ is waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So Christ's final work, that is what he did on the cross, which is done, is directly connected to his session. Look closely. The Hebrew writer says, but when he had done this, he sat down. Those are causally connected. He's saying because Christ was done with the atonement, because it was perfect and it worked, Because that happened, he was done with his labors, and he sat down. And in seating, in taking a seat, he's sitting for a particular reason. He currently is ruling and reigning over everything. Jesus Christ did not just pull up a cloud and gather a nice, wonderful, heavenly pillow and sit old anywhere. Christ rose, as Revelation tells us, and came up to the Father and took the scroll which I believe to be the, the Spirit of God prophesying through John the Revelator to be the title deed, not only to the earth, but also the covenants. And Christ unleashed the scroll. And in unleashing the scroll, he has a right to do so. And that scroll really is the enacting of the new covenant. This takes place in the spirit, but in the natural as well. Christ retains his physical body as we celebrate every year through the day of ascension. Uh, Ascension Sunday, which is a wonderful, glorious, and neglected holiday in the church. And he ascends into the heaven, proceeds into the throne room of God, having right to be there as our representative and as God's representative, completing the covenant on both sides. And then he sits down, and then he begins to reign at the right hand of power. When, When the Bible uses the term right hand, it's talking about strength. Because most men in the world are, are right-handed. It's just kind of the way that God designed things. I don't really fully understand it, but this is the way that the Bible speaks about authority and rule and power. And so Jesus Christ being at the right hand of the Father, he has been delegated to reign, according to 1 Corinthians 15, until he hands the kingdom over to the Father. 
the, this exposes a great flaw in most of our eschatology or most of our thinking about the future because we, in, the, in this culture, are very familiar with in the church a eschatology that basically says things are going to get worse. And then Jesus Christ will come to establish his kingdom. But the Bible says in the Gospels that John the Baptist said the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't say it's far away, it's close, it's at hand. Jesus Christ said the same thing. And then finally, after he dies and is resurrected, he then says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Authority doesn't exist outside of a realm of authority. And so Christ is instituting his kingdom. He brought it. It's here, and he's bringing it evermore. He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which starts off as the smallest of the seeds and grows until it fills all the earth. And then it says that the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field come and rest in its branches and find shade under it. The point being the birds and the beasts are symbols of the nations. The nations are streaming to Christ and they're doing so because he's ruling and reigning. He has a scepter and he's sitting on the throne. And so understanding this, we ask why he does this. Namely, he waits until he crushes his enemies under his feet. And there are two modes of Christ's kingdom. He either crushes his enemies by turning them into friends, by converting them, or by allowing them through their own sin and rebellion to persist in, until they face a time of judgment. And these two modes are actually carried about in the church. Notice that it says that he is waiting until they are crushed under his feet. So who is his feet? It's the body of Christ, the church. So rather than understanding that as time goes on, we're going to see more apostasy and more weakness and more theological deficiency in the body of Christ, I believe the scriptures are quite clear that Christ not only chose his bride, but is sanctifying her and is washing her and preparing her and maturing her. And to this end, he's given the ministers of the gospel. Paul says that I am concerned that you are waving, wavering from Christ because I desire to offer you or present you as a pure and chaste virgin. And so if Paul is saying that even in the first generation of Christianity, how much more, now that Christianity is spreading throughout the world, should we expect for the Holy Spirit to prepare the bride? Therefore, because the Hebrew writer tells of the victorious state, that is, what Christ is going to do, crush his enemies, before he stops being seated, therefore, because of that, prophesying eschatological doom and gloom, that is, things about the future, telling stories about a great falling away, which will happen before a period of tribulation in which all the Christians in the world, or even the majority of them, will fall away, Prophesying that sort of eschatology is contradiction of clear scripture. It's not only contradiction of clear scripture, it flies in the face of the entire redemptive arc of the entire Bible. Because Adam and Eve, the only people in the world at the time of their fall, they subject the world to futility and God has been chasing down his children back. After Adam sinned, God did not just blow up the garden. He came down and he said, where are you? God has been chasing his children back. He did it and got them back in Christ. And he's still chasing down those who are elect and yet not adopted and members of his people. 
Nevertheless, the Hebrew writer, having provided the testimony of both the Father and the Son, adds the third and final testimony, namely the Holy Spirit. And so he extols the voice and glory of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 15, after this, or and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. You may remember these verses. They may sound familiar to, to you. He's actually quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And he's quoting this as a reminder of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, interestingly, again, we saw that the Hebrew writer considers the words of David in Psalm 40 to be the words of Christ. Here, the Hebrew writer says that the words of the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, both in this passage and in the next quotation, are actually the voice of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see what's going on here. Not only is he offering God's testimony, God the Holy Spirit's testimony, about the nature of the new covenant, he also is simultaneously informing us of what the Bible is. This is a glorious and wonderful revelation. He says not only that they are words of the very Spirit, but he shows them what is the proper use of Scripture. For example, in, in 2 Timothy 3.16-17, all Scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired, it, it sounds very uh, detached from a spiritual thing, but if you break apart inspired and you trace it back to the original, it means breathed out. Or that is the Holy Spirit spirates, uh, an a injection of the Spirit himself into the writer's mode of thought. And so the Holy Spirit inspires Jeremiah and Isaiah to speak for him, to speak on his behalf. So not only do we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit confirming the witness of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but also at the same time we see God testifying of what the scriptures to be used for. So by hearing the univocal, that is, with one voice, testimony of the Trinity, Christians ought to have confidence before God in every situation, namely the situation of their understanding of the principles of the faith. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, referring back to all that he's talked about for the last three chapters, he says, by the new and living way that he opened through us, uh, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. He says, in the light of everything that we've learned about what Christ has done for his people, how he not only has made an atonement by pouring out his blood, but through his body, he has opened up a way to come before the Father, that through that, we ought to draw near. And drawing near is the opposite of being afraid of God so as to run for, from him. Fearing God rightly causes us to pursue him and to go after him hard instead of dwindling back or shrinking back or allowing our confidence or, or our certainty of the things of the gospel to be shaken. So what is the answer to doubt in the Christian life then? Should you ignore your doubts? Should you let them like weeds fester until they grow and have a strong root? If you want to see a, an example of a yard that's been taken over by weeds, I would invite you to join any of the children later today. And then after that, if you don't see any, come over to my house. Things that are left to fester and grow, especially weeds, are able to break apart the strongest rocks. I even have a joint uh, between two pieces of concrete. 
in the back of my house on the other side of the garage, and I found a maple tree that had started growing there because a little maple whirligig had fallen into the gutter of my garage, had flown through the gutter, and fallen into the crack near where the gutter had been pouring out water. And the maple tree was about four feet tall, and it wasn't there about three months ago. This is what unconfirmed or undestroyed doubt does to the Christian life. It actually was so powerful that it broke the hole bigger, which I had already tried to patch. I was devastated. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, the, the, the tree was, you know, it was uh, about half an inch thick, you know. And if it should have been left there, it would have taken over the garage in a generation. The point being, what's the answer to doubt in the Christian faith? Is to become more convinced through the truth by interacting and engaging with and reading the scripture and exhorting one another as we're going to see the command to do in just a few minutes. These believers need to not turn back to any other way before God because they have a way that is permanently open. They have confidence to pursue through Christ righteousness with God and they have no need of anything else. There's absolutely no consideration of their appearance before God according to what they are able to do. Nor should they be able to accomplish anything at all. And this confidence is fuel for extreme zeal. That is, how do, how do you get motivated to do great things in your life for God? It's to have confidence. It's to have absolute certainty. Rock-solid, bedrock foundation. Not in yourself or your own performance, but rather in something that God himself has done, knowing that God cannot lie. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. By this, the Hebrew writer says, not only do we have confidence to not shrink back from Christianity, to not revert back to those things which we used to put our trust in, but we also have a job to do in the people of God. You have a mighty significant role, Christian, in the plan of God. You are to inspire your fellow brothers and sisters, the, the fathers of the faith, the mothers of the faith, your spiritual children pertaining to what situation you're in. You have a role, and that role is to inspire, to encourage, to provoke, to egg on your brothers and sisters, your friends in the faith to do great things for God. And not only to do great things for God, to have hope and confidence in the light of terrible things happening around you. There are amazing things that can be done by people who have a little bit of confidence in Christ. Jesus, when he was explaining these things, the, the miraculous things that he was doing to his disciples, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray and then he did, and then they were like, well, we didn't, still didn't get it. And then they said, Lord, give us this type of faith. Give us a lot of faith. Increase it. Make it bigger. And what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you the truth, you only need faith as large as a grain of mustard seed, the, the, the smallest of the seeds. He's explaining to them that they're, they're, what they're thinking about faith is, is wrong. They think that their faith is something that they can... Uh, establish among themselves, that they can prop up or through their own zeal, they can, uh, you know, somehow manufacture confidence before God. And we see this especially if, you, if you've ever heard the story of, of the crucifixion, we see this extremely clearly in Peter's denials of Christ. 
He says, even if all others forsake you, I'll stay true. I'll even die for you. And we know that Peter runs away, even as Christ is, is arrested. The point being that Jesus is saying one little tiny grain of the real thing, that is not confidence in yourself with a knowledge of Christ's work, but just the confidence in Christ's work, and you can do amazing things. So the assembly of the church, therefore, because it is the vehicle by which God is continuing his mission that he began about in Christ, that vehicle is a supremely important vehicle. It is the avenue through which further gospel activity and witness take place in the world. This is why not neglecting the church is so important. For you who are young students or young people, if you have not found a church which is edifying you and strengthening you, you need to find one, and you can't take forever to do it. The Hebrew writer here is saying that you need to engage with someone, that you need to connect with someone to stir them up to good works. And that stirring up is something that not only edifies them, but it also edifies you. Christians should regularly do this, encourage, exhort, and inspire one another to love their neighbors sacrificially. I even think uh, some of the brothers in our church, I think we can now righteously even get into a wonderful one-upmanship for the glory of Christ. Like, I read a verse this week, and uh, I memorized it, and then you challenge or you bet your brother or sister, hey, maybe I can memorize more verses than you this week. Now, if you turn it into a flesh fest, then it's no good. But these are the types of joy-filled freedoms that are possible in the, in the Bible. In fact, I actually think that one of the things, one of the criticisms of the word of God is that there are so many prohibitions. But when you actually look at the types of things that are pro- prohibited, there's actually great freedom in the Christian walk. There's amazing freedom. Those things which are deliberately sinful, knowledgeably sinful, are to be avoided, but those things which are to encourage one another should be encouraged and done and practiced, and they should really be a lifestyle. So what is this warning of judgment that we see in verse 26? This is a verse that troubles many Christians, but in the context of what's going on here, I want to confidently say that it does apply to you, but it doesn't apply to you in the way that you perhaps think it does. The opposite of confident entrance is either a begrudging entrance before God or walking before God in some sort of stubborn self-approach or a zeal of your own making, or it's turning to a way of your own making. So if you don't enter before the throne of God through Christ with confidence, you're going to enter out of some sort of sense of obligation or duty that's not faith-filled, it's not of, it's not in accordance with the truth. Or if you shrink back from Christ totally, you will be choosing another way. This is the difference between those who say there's some neutrality with Christ and the scriptures which say there, there is no neutrality. Jesus Christ himself said, whoever is not with me is against me. If you or I said that, we would be considered to be ridiculous. But Christ is, is God in the flesh. He's testifying truly who, is never, who does not gather is scattering. And so putting off answering Christ, putting off answering the gospel, is not an answer to the gospel. It's not putting off an answer to the gospel. It is the answer to the gospel that you're giving at that moment. Not making a choice is to choose to reject Christ. Not making a choice to confidently enter before God is to necessarily either not enter or try to find some other way. That's what these Christians 
we're being tempted to do. The continuing on in sin, which he is describing as being the, the sin that is identified here, is a functional rejection of the atonement. What do I mean by functional? You may never say in your heart of hearts, I don't believe that Christ died for my sins. But if you do not walk by faith, trusting in Christ's atonement, you are functionally denying. That is, you're denying it through your lifestyle, practice, and true heart belief, even though you may never say that in your mind, or even affirm it if someone asked you. Here the writer intends, or, or he's seeking to put his finger on knowledgeable, willful, continual, unrepentant sin that someone chooses to do even after uh, coming in a, at least a small way in an interaction with the truth. He says in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth. The point here is not those Christians who sin through weakness of will or weakness of conscience or weakness of sanctification that is, those things which are besetting sins, I do not believe are in view here. What I believe are in view, are, uh, is in view here are sins that you persist in, and even though your conscience bears witness against you in the moment, or the Spirit himself speaks in the moment, you put them off forever. Not sins of forgetting, <clears throat> excuse me, not sins of weakness of moral character, not sins of bad decisions or bad um, bad judgments, but sins that are high-handed rebellion and persistence. And that high-handed rebellion and persistence, namely that he has in view, is turning away from Christ and reverting back to seeking to establish righteousness by doing the works of the law. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning, there is a fearful expectation of judgment. Why is there a fearful expectation of judgment? Because the prophecy that Christ gave was clear, all Christians of that day knew that that prophecy was about Jerusalem and was coming within a generation. And some young Christians who were being tempted by the Judaizers did not have a knowledge of. Why is there a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury which will consume the adversaries? It's because that was what was prophesied against that city. And if these Hebrew Christians turned away from the pure worship of Christ, being a member of the church and seeking to go become a member of old Israel, which is not Israel at all, but rather a, just a shadow of the true Israel, then they would have potentially moved back, physically moved back to be a part of the people who lived in that land in Palestine. Not only was Jerusalem surrounded, this is a fact that's often not brought up, not only was Jerusalem set, uh, surrounded and for three years laid siege, but after Jerusalem fell, over the next two years, over 900 cities in Palestine were wiped to the ground because the Jews persisted in their rebellion. After being judged in their capital city, the zealots and those who were revolutionaries went to all the other cities and continued the fight. And they would murder each other. They would, it wasn't just the Romans coming in and killing Israelites. It was Israelite rising up against his brother and against his, his neighbor. And so if these Christians who are hearing this letter were to fall under the temptation that they had been presented to turn from Christ and to seek to establish their righteousness by themselves, then potentially they would have been caught up in the judgment. This is what Jesus is saying in the 
Olivet Discourse when he says, see that you know, when the signal's given, you fly to the mountains. You get out of Dodge, so to speak. So, nevertheless, though this has direct application to his original hearers, I believe it is still applicable to us in a way. If a man should reject Christ after professing Christ, after hearing the gospel, after participating in the life of the church, should he persist in that rejection of Christ, renounce his former Christianity, there no longer remains a sacrifice because there's no other name other than Christ by which men can be saved. That is what I believe he's talking about. I don't believe he's trying to address Christians who still can recognize ongoing sin in their life. And should he do that, I know of no one who would have any hope, which is a great indication, not that we can prove the scriptures from our experience, but it's a great barometer. It's, it's like the compass pointing true north. You can get somewhere by it. The understanding is this, that if what Christ said about blasphemy, the sin of blasphemy, is true, that if you persist in rejecting the voice of the Holy Spirit, your sins won't be forgiven because you won't be in a state of forgiveness. The exact same thing is, is here. If someone treats the blood of Christ with contempt so as to reject Christ and forsake Christ, then that is the one who has this fearful expectation of judgment, which for us is actually a great confidence builder. I think it's right, if you understand the context, I regularly call this verse to mind when I am uh, struggling with temptation. When in the moment when I am thinking, oh, I should do this thing or that thing or, or whatever it be, I use this verse saying, I know that that's sin. And I know that my sin here is volitional at this point. I, I think it's a right thing to memorize. I think, in fact, in my own experience, this is the most effective verse in those moments where I'm facing deep temptation. So take that or leave it, but I think it's helpful. Nevertheless, the writer is convinced of better things. If you remember back from the earlier parts of the chapters, he says, I'm convinced that the, mo the majority of you are, are actually true and, and walking in the light. And so he then moves from this warning, which is applicable to, to a small number of them, and, and actually bearing uh, deep importance, he then moves on to say, but recall the former days. I think it's important. He does not say, think about your walk with the Lord now. He doesn't say, take a barometer on whether you think you're on fire or not. What he's calling them to do is remember the grace of God that was active in their life beforehand. The reason for that is because his main point is that Christ's sanctification was done once for all. And so you do not add to the merit or the worth or the grace of God in your sanctification. Look closely. But recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. He's saying that I'm confident that the most of you, the majority of you, are going to walk after Christ faithfully because the grace of God was evident through things that happened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The point of the book of Hebrews is that the old covenant has passed away, the new covenant has been inaugurated, and that new covenant is a covenant which will never pass away, it will never fade away, 
And it comes with a kingdom that cannot be shaken, even though the nation of Israel was about to be shaken away. The point is that these Hebrew Christians, these, these people who are reading this letter, should look at the prior grace of God and understand that God has been manifestly evident through the work that he has done in their church and in their lives. And that should be a small source of assurance for them. Even though we know that there's a glorious end to all things, even though the Hebrew writer in this same chapter has just said that Christ is reigning on the throne until his enemies are crushed, even though that happens, we still have a theology of suffering. The greatest opposition to the post-millennial hope, that is, that Christ will come back to a victorious bride and that we, he will crush all of his enemies, is that they accuse the post-millennial hope of not having any sort of room for temporary suffering. How can that be confident or how can that help someone over in Syria now who is a Christian living in that country? Or who in times past fell under the hands of the Romans or were involved in the different religious persecutions in Europe. How does that give them any fuel? The reason it gives them fuel, the reason it gives them zeal and confidence is because it won't be like this forever. And not only that, their endurance through suffering actually proves that God's grace is at work in them. The writer reminds them of something that's already happened, that they were involved in public shaming, in plunder and persecution, even having things stolen from them, and through their confidence, not turning away from Christianity, even though if they should have turned away from Christianity, all of the persecution would have stopped, their confidence in that moment actually proves that they confidently trust that they have something that is better than their physical goods or their personal safety or their physical health. These are things which are not, abs uh, not able to be taken away. Trust in God is something that no man, if it is true in you, can take away from you. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. We're using that word a lot, but the point is that this is the thrust of the Hebrew writer's argument. Look at all the great things that God has done and told you about and testified of to you directly through the words of the prophets, not only David, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, but those were speaking on the behalf of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit themselves. And that has come to you through the oracles of God, which are, have been proven true. And not only have they been proven true, God's grace has been evident in your own circumstance. The historical fact of Christianity is true. The personal fact of Christianity is true. Therefore, we have a great future. And that great future is receiving the inheritance which we hope to inherit, which is really the thrust of the next chapter is that we're still waiting to inherit it. So again, the writer's confident of the grace of God and all the confidence is done based upon their new identity in Christ. He says, but we are not of those he says, we don't belong to that category. And the reason we don't belong to that category of those who are timid and those who shrink back is because we've been remade after the image of the faithful one. You see, the thing that saves you is not so much your faith in Christ, which is necessary, but actually your faith in Christ is directly anchored to the faith of Christ. It's the faith that Christ had in the Father, that the Father would vindicate him and raise him from the dead. That's how Christ defeated death on your behalf. It's the confidence and faith that Christ had that the Father would receive the sacrifice that he was making that your faith is able to save you. 
And so don't get distracted hoping that you can trust in Christ enough. Really, in fact, the, the evidence of your trusting in Christ is the destroying of doubts, which, uh, which is brought about by the Holy Spirit so that you actually trust. It's not my faith, but it's Christ's work. It's the object of my faith, not the quality of my faith. That is really the point of this chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would glorify your son and his work through our lives. We pray that like these Hebrew Christians, we would stand up in the light of persecution, that we would steward those things you give us, but not in such a way as to be captured by them, that we would own our things instead of our things owning us, that if this country, the way that our culture is progressing, that should we find ourselves, God, in a time of persecution, which I think is very evident on the horizon, that we would not only have the ability to withstand the thunderstorms and the hurricanes, but that we would thrive in the midst of them. Yet, like your church uh, profited in times of old at the, through the Roman Empire's persecution, through the, through the people of Israel rejecting your prophets and apostles, we pray, God, that you would create within our people here and in the church in this country truth and, and a bedrock foundation of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would, through our right uh, worship of you and pursuit of you, that we would testify of your glory and that that testimony would not just be honoring to you, but that it would be able to be observed by all those around us. We pray these things for the glory of your son. Amen.